Welcome to Dirty Drinks, where infectious disease and infection prevention professionals get together and talk about everything dirty that keeps them up at night. Join co-hosts Dr. Rick Starlin and Sarah Stream as they talk to other professionals about the dirty things that they think about every day. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Dirty Drinks. How are you today, Rick? I am great, Sarah. Yourself? Doing well. I am excited that this is episode 22. Yeah, that's great. I didn't know we'd ever get this high. We're, we've almost been at it for six months. That's crazy. It's about one a week is what we've been doing, right? Yeah. That's, that's so much fun. Thank you for this uh, venture. Yeah, it's been great. And we have another great guest on with us today. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited to talk to uh, talk to Trevor Van Schooneveld uh, today. Um, welcome, Trevor. Uh, thanks, thanks for having me. It's thanks like third us. summer outside, so I don't know why we're we're hanging yeah, out inside. No. It's, it's it's I was just out there, and it was hard to come in. Actually, I thought about doing this from my car or something. Yeah, you should do it from the golf course. That would be good. That would be good. I actually just got an email that they're doing a shotgun start out at the, out at the, the country club uh, at on Thursday when it's supposed to be like 70. That oh. would be amazing. Yes. Yeah. Very we'll just nice. take the day. <laughs> we all have time to take the day, don't we? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Nothing else to do at all. Nothing going on. Mm-hmm. No, just don't look at the news and everything will be fine. <laughs> Great. Exactly. That's right. <laughs> uh, well, uh, as we said, uh, Trevor's joining us today. Trevor has uh, many hats that he wears here at UNMC in Nebraska Medicine. So um, we'll take, let him take a minute and introduce himself to us. Sure. Uh, Trevor Van Schooneveld, I'm an adult infectious disease physician. I have been on faculty here for uh, over 11 years. Um, I am the program director for our antibody, uh, infectious disease fellowship. I'm the medical director for our antibiotic stewardship program. Uh, I'm, uh, associate medical director infection control here. I work some with the state's, uh, stewardship outreach program and infection control outreach program, um, amongst other stuff. Very cool. So, um, how did you start your journey into where you are now? Did you always Uh, know you wanted to get into medicine? uh, No, that's actually, I did not. I was uh, very adamant I was not going to go into medicine. My father was a family practice doctor in a small town in Colorado, and people would always say, oh, are you going to be a doctor like your dad? And I would always tell them, no, no, I'm not. Um, But uh, I went through undergrad and got a degree in biochemistry. And, you know, in biochemistry, your options are going to health professions or going to graduate school. Um, and I wasn't very good in the lab. All my gels didn't want run right. All my extractions just failed. I was a a terrible bench scientist and plus it was really boring. I thought, (laughs) and I took a course in, um, medical microbiology. I didn't even know microbiology was a major you could have when I went, when I started. Uh, and I took this course, uh, toward the end of my, uh, junior year. And I thought, wow, that's really cool like bacteria are shooting like protein harpoons through cells to attach themselves. That's awesome. Uh, And so medicine kind of got into the back of my mind there. Um, And then I graduated and um, 
worked in like a chemistry lab, extracting pollutants from dirt and soil and dead animals, um, which wasn't very thrilling either. And thought, well, I should probably apply to medical school and um, got in here at Nebraska. Um, and so I ended up out here. And the rest is history. Well, it's, it's something like history. So. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah. so I don't know if you want me to go into infectious disease, how I ended up there, or I mean, I can tell you the rest of that story. It always had been kind of in the back of my mind, uh, infectious disease, but I always wanted to give it a fair shake. And so I went through medical school and I'm like, well, I'll try all this stuff and see what I like and despise surgery. Well, I wouldn't say I despise surgery. I didn't mind surgery, uh, but I didn't like getting up at four in the morning. Um, and you, know, when you're making your choices of infect of specialty, you look at like lifestyle as part of it and four in the AM and 4am is not when I like to get up. And so, uh, you know, the surgeon lifestyle didn't seem like my kind of lifestyle and enjoyed medicine and the systematic approach and that had infectious disease, um, and then did medicine and said, well, I'll give everything a fair shake and see what I like. And, uh, I liked infectious disease. That's what got me excited. So um, that's, that's why I went into infectious disease. That's what I enjoyed doing, what I enjoyed working on. I'm sure it was that rotation that you did with me, right? That was what, was. what clinched it for you. That totally sold it. When we saw that consult, can you rule out infection in this patient <laughs> who, who uh, came in for a pacemaker placement? No, no, it was really good. It was the, those are great rotations. I did three months of infectious disease as a, as a resident and uh, enjoyed every part of it. Every one of it loved working with the faculty that I worked with. They were all fantastic. And uh, well, they were mostly all fantastic. Um, not you, Rick, but there was one faculty member that wasn't so fantastic, but that's okay. Oh, I thought you were going to say there was, there was one that was, uh, was fantastic and it wasn't me. It wasn't you. <laughs> no, they were all great, including you. So. Yes. No, it, yes. it's all good. It's all good. So, um, so you became a Nebraskan uh, as you got, uh, got through school and everything else. Where did you say you went to undergrad? Uh, Colorado State in Fort Collins. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Nice. And then you came to the Plains and you've been here ever since. I have. I have. We we came for medical school and thought we'd go back after four years, but actually really liked living here and made connections and uh, really, you know, just didn't want to leave. So. The lower cost of living too, isn't it? Yeah. Well, yeah, that's a thing. Uh, <laughs> we went from living in this like little tiny 425 foot square one bedroom, you know, apartment. And uh, we moved to Omaha and I, my rent went up $60 and my apartment was more than twice as large. And I thought, I don't even have a furniture to fit in this place. I got like a whole empty room. So it was, uh, it was definitely different. <laughs> so. Good deal. Good deal. So some of the things you talked about doing, um, you know, we've, we've obviously had a antimicrobial stewardship spe uh, special edition show that you were a big part of. Um, so we kind of mentioned a, a fair amount of things on that. But when I when I actually think of things that uh, Trevor does, that's the, kind of the first thing that comes to mind is how much impact that uh, he's been able to build a stewardship program here. You guys have a whole web page with guidelines and, and uh, you know, kind of uh, how to, as much as you can cook book medicine and infectious disease, your team has done a tremendous job of, of uh doing that. So how did that all start? Where, where did you, oh. your interest in stewardship start and, and, and grow from there? 
Yeah. So uh, my initial exposure to stewardship as a fellow was when I was told to review everyone on quinolones at one of the hospitals I was at, not this one, and call people if they're not appropriate. And I said, well, how do I know if they're not appropriate? Just look at them. You'll know. And fill out this form because we get paid to do this. Uh, and so that was my exposure to antibiotic stewardship. And I thought, this is horrible. I don't want to call people and talk about this. This is really, anyway, that was not how to do stewardship. Um, and so when I was looking for, for a position, um, uh, I was talking to Phil Smith, who was our previous division chief. And then uh, Mark Rupp, who's our current division chief, said, Trevor, we need to meet. I want to tell you about this position we have. Uh, and he was looking for somebody to help run an antimicrobial stewardship program. Uh, which it turns out was different than me filling out forms and calling people and telling them to switch their uh, Levaquin to uh, oral. And so I met with him and I talked to our current uh, ID pharmacist then, Elizabeth Hermson, and was excited about what they were doing. I had a very different philosophy uh, about how to do stewardship and how to improve care and uh, thought there was a lot of great opportunity in it because there weren't a lot of people weren't doing it. Um, and so just start in that position. And it was really, uh, it was really Dr. Rupp's and Elizabeth's vision to really start the program with the philosophy that it had, um, which is, you know, there's sort of two flavors of stewardship programs. I find the, um, uh, front end, you've got to call us if you want anything programs. And then the, uh, we're going to help you sort of more on the back end to, uh, clean things up, uh, you know, sort of an audit and feedback program. And they had really embarked upon a philosophy of audit and feedback. We don't want to be the cops. We don't want to be the barrier between you and what you think is best for your patient. We want to help craft that with education and guidelines, things like that. Um, but we want to be more of a partner to help you uh, to help you think through that. And they really set that vision. Uh, but I really embraced it. And I think that is exactly the right way to think about stewardship. And so that's part of why we've built our uh, built our website and uh, put all that stuff on the website. I mean, I always joke with the fellows that I put it there so I don't have to remember it, uh, which is partially true because I'll say, well, how are we supposed to do that? Let me just pull up what we put on our stewardship site because then I, I you know, I just, I know where it's at. I know how I want to manage things. It's all on there. Uh, but we've also wanted to make that freely available. And I think one of the things, our visions is not just to improve, you know, antibiotic use at our facility, but to make what we do widely available to the state and others around the country. And so that's why we've always kept our website sort of on a free and available. And if you want to use our stuff, that's great. Go for it. Just give us credit for it if you do. Um, that you got it from us. And, but we want you to take our stuff. We want you to put it into practice. We want you to, to use our protocols for various things. So uh, it's been really, uh, I've really enjoyed it. And it's been really encouraging to see uh, other hospitals that use what we have or to talk to people and say, oh, we did your thing with Procalstone and oh, we loved your guidelines on this or that and put them into place. And it's really helpful. So it's, it's really gratifying to do that and enjoyable. Uh, I think that's one of the fun things about stewardship is, you know, as a, as a clinical infectious disease physician, I can see one patient and make an impact on that one patient, or I can, you know, and so my general ID services, 20 patients or whatever it is when I have it. But in stewardship, I can impact patients across this hospital and across the state to improve their care. Uh, and I don't even have to see it. And so I think that's one of the really gratifying and enjoyable things about antimicrobial stewardship is just the influence you can have on improving care and improving um, outcomes that, you know, without even seeing. 
Yeah, I think it's a terrific resource. And I think it illustrates the practice of medicine, uh, you know, today, the last decade, when you have information, it used to go to residence report, you might not remember this, but you know, before you had technology and a phone in your hand and everything else, and it was all about who could remember what and, you know, that was what was viewed as important. Now it's not really so much that you necessarily remember exactly something. You recognize the clinical keys and the, the cues and you know what you want to do, but then you have these resources where you can go look and see what's best practice and it's right there at your fingertips. And so I think that's the beauty of what you have developed here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's hard for me to remember everything. So I need those tools. It's, it's impossible. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's literally impossible. And plus, I mean, you guys keep track of resistance patterns and everything else. Um, and, and that changes, right? So, mm-hmm. I mean, how can uh, you expect every provider to keep track of the fact that, hey, maybe last year for pseudomonas, cefepime was the best drug, but now it looks like we've used so much cefepime that there's a change and we need to use a different antimicrobial now. Yeah. Yeah. And, and with the changing in technology, there's so much new technology that the micro lab has introduced and things like that. And so we really do, uh, I think, need to help people with that because you can't be an expert in everything. And so I don't expect our internists to keep up on every single new thing the micro lab has done, but you know, we want to have some tools to help them utilize the data that they've, that they're providing them. That's great. Antimicrobial stewardship is something that has really fascinated me since I became an infection preventionist. So um, it's awesome to see the whole team getting on board and standardizing those processes and creating tools for sure. Now, you are also program chair of the infectious disease program, right? Yeah, yeah, I'm the program director. I've, you know, we've, I've been the program director. I always think I should look up uh, when I interview fellows, I tell them I've been the program director, but I can never remember how long we've had our program. I think it's nine years, but it might be eight. Um, Yeah, so I'm the program director and have been since we started the program. Uh, When I was a fellow, I did the the Creighton program, which is a joint program, rotated over here, rotated at Creighton, rotated at the VA. Um, and uh, a lot of the, you know, high volume clinical services over here. And so when I came on faculty, Phil Smith said, you know, all the other medicine divisions have a fellowship, except for infectious disease, and it's not our fellowship. And so we need to talk through, you know, Creighton had kind of their faculty had shrunk and they said, well, do you, you know, we met with them and he said, do you want us to take over the program? Cause our faculty had really grown and was a lot larger at that time than it had been. And they said, well, no, we want to keep doing our thing. So, well, that sounds great. You know, well, that sounds great. We're, we're going to start our own program. Um, but your fellows are still welcome to come over here and they do come over here still. And they rotate in our oncology and transplant service to get a, uh, you know, a, a good experience in those areas. Um, and so we wrote up all the paperwork and did all the everything you have to do, which is a ridiculous amount of paperwork, uh, submitted it all to ACGME and got the program approved um, uh, and uh, recruited our first fellow, who, which was Andrea Greenhines, who's still here on faculty, does both pediatric and adult ID. And um, so she joined us. And uh, When we started the fellowship program, uh, we were approved for two, but actually only had dollars for one fellow. And so like uh, Phil and then eventually Mark begged the dean for dollars and he was very generous. And 
then through sort of some very creative activities and me submitting lots more paperwork repeatedly, we eventually have grown the program up to three fellows per year. But I think I think I've submitted paperwork to expand our fellowship at least three or four times. And um, yeah, it's a lot of paper pushing and writing about why you need this and why you need that. But that, that's sort of the administrative side. The fun side has been like the fellows. That's the best part of having a fellowship program is getting to work with the fellows because they're excited about ID. They're enthusiastic. They're learning and growing as clinicians. And uh, it's just a lot of fun to work with them. So, Yeah, I know when I was an instructor, um, the, the whole administrative part of it is the least fun, but then you get That's to teach true. people. So yes, yes. <laughs> I don't think anybody goes into it to, uh, to fill out administrative paperwork, or at least if they do, they're in it for the wrong reasons. It's very true. Um, how has being an educator shaped how you practice throughout all that? Oh, that's a good question. I think, you know, one of my, uh, one of my goals as an antimicrobial stewardship director is to sort of uh, educate myself out of a job. I mean, I'd love to never tell anybody how to use their antibiotics again. I'd love to have everybody be right on top of that. And so I think I've taken that, uh, you know, uh, to stewardship because so much of stewardship is just helping people to understand better, you know, uh, how to manage things, understand resources better. And then I think, you know, you really, that's the goal of having trainees on your service is to help them, at least my goal is to help them understand how I think. Because what they need to do is start to learn, how do I think about this like an infectious disease physician? And so that's where I want to let them into my thinking of how I'm going about. I can tell them, do this, this, and this. Uh, but I really want them to understand how I'm making that decision, why I'm making that decision, the uncertainties of that decision. Like, yeah, here's what we're going to do, but really there's no literature and I'm kind of just making this up as we go along. It sort of pulls the curtain back which, you know, maybe that I'm not always super comfortable with saying, well, we really don't know what we're doing here, but we operate so many times in infectious disease in areas where we don't have a lot of data and there aren't clear, you know, I haven't had a 10,000 person randomized trial that shows us what to do. So it's good for them to understand that thinking so that they can make those decisions in the future on their own. That's great. Um, obviously, right now, you're fellowship director and recruiting fellows and helping train fellows during the midst of a pandemic. Uh, and so, you know, and obviously, a few years ago, we had Ebola, you know, uh, going on. And uh, before, and when you were in training, there was SARS, there was, you were probably a fellow or in training when H1N1 was, I don't, you were probably oh, right. That was my first year faculty. First so year faculty. I came right. I, I was just finishing up fellowship and started faculty when H1N1 hit. Yeah. So what, uh, what impact has this had as far as, you know, you probably talk to other program directors across the country, uh, you know, people going to ID, staying away from ID. Um, what things, what's the future of this uh, looking like? Yeah, I think um, there has been increased interest. So, you know, at the, in the program director meetings about four or five years ago, it was very doom and gloom. Nobody wants to do ID numbers are way down. Um, there's been a lot of grassroots um, uh, recruiting from infectious disease people to try to get people interested in it. I think uh, things like Ebola and, uh, and SARS ha have only increased interest. Uh, I think people see the benefit that infectious disease brings. They see 
um, you know, people who can, that can really lead through crises. Um, and I think things like antibiotic stewardship actually gets a lot of people excited and interested. And I find that that, um, uh, that has brought more people. And I wouldn't say it's a huge amount of people. Uh, it's not the doom and gloom that it was. We're not cardiology uh, or GI uh, with hundreds of applicants per spot, but it's improved a lot, I'd say, in the last few years. And the interest just in the last year or two, there has been increased interest in, um, in uh, sort of pandemic, I don't want to say pandemic, outbreak preparedness, pandemic issues. I mean, the things that people see infectious disease doctors doing, it, there's an increase in um, trainees who are interested in those topics. And I don't know if a lot of people know, but um, University of Nebraska Medical Center actually has some unique opportunities in those areas that uh, I assume the fellows get uh, a chance to at least have some exposure to. Yeah, yeah. When they're uh, second years, uh, we have done um, some biopreparedness training where they get some extra lectures. They get, uh, you know, we try to time it where there's maybe an exercise. They get to do the whole Ebola level PPE. Um, and we're expanding that. Uh, you know, they've also gotten to sit in with the Sea the Stars program. They have the class that uh, Elizabeth Schnellbelt has developed for the military. Uh, I know at least one of our fellows got to sort of audit that class, which she said was fantastic and really enjoyed. So um, it's been uh, it's been really good to have that here. I think that's something unique that our program can offer that uh, a lot of places can't just because we have the faculty who are experts in that. And that's what I tell the people interview is, you know, I didn't build that, but we have all the faculty here who are experts, uh, you know, are national experts in areas. And so we want you guys to get some experience and spend some time, you know, hearing their thoughts and working with them. Um, even if it's not what you're going to do, uh, as we've all learned, uh, we all have to be uh, pandemic experts, unfortunately. Yeah, and it seems like we probably won't be off the hook for that for a while. Uh, sadly not. <laughs> sadly yeah. not. <laughs> we had a couple of our second year ID fellows on and talked to them about their experience. Um, how has the pandemic kind of shaped what you're doing as program director? Yeah, um, it's, um, I think uh, the good of, uh, of the pandemic has been things like Zoom and being able to make some things more available. There's been some good with recruiting and that I think we've interviewed more and more diverse uh, people because of the pandemic and not being able to travel. Uh, I think some of the negative impacts has really been just trying to build some of the community and, uh, you know, the people who come here, uh, most of them aren't from here. And so you want people to feel part of your, of your uh, workplace community. And, you know, it's, uh, that's not just what happens at work. And so it's been a little challenging to do some of that. It's been better in the last, I'd say, year, uh, nine months. Um, but it, it really was challenging, particularly last winter with our new fellows to like, how do we like, nobody's getting together and hanging out. So we aren't going to have any social events whatsoever. And hanging out over Zoom is just, while it's fun, it's only so fun. And it's, you know, so. Yeah, that's what we do on this podcast, hang out on Zoom. 
It's good, but it'd be yeah. way better if we could hang out with a beverage in our hand somewhere. It was. That was the plan. Um, you know, we're still we're still aiming to get there. We're actually uh, hoping to take this whole drink in your hand on the road someday and, you know, film some shows from people we've had the opportunity to meet across the country. That would be a lot of fun. That would be fun. Man, that sounds great. Yeah. It's the dirty drinks party bus. That's right. I would get on that party bus. We can make sure it's appropriately socially distanced and uh, and have a lot of hand sanitizer and ventilation check and everything else. We would we would make Doctor Rupp proud with the ventilation since he loves he loves the ventilation. I'd ride. I'd ride. <laughs> it would be fine. It would be. It would be. It would be fun. It would. Maybe someday we can can get to that point. Um. So. Uh, other things that you do is you're also IP medical director here at uh, the Med Center. So you've been actively involved, obviously, not just with the stewardship program, but in building the uh, whole program around protecting our colleagues and the public as far as COVID goes. So that added on to everything that uh, you'd been doing. How hard was that back at the beginning when we really didn't know much, but that we knew we had to do something to make people feel safe at work? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was uh, really a, an unfortunate and disastrous time. Um, one of the more stressful times, I'd say, in my career uh, that went on for a number of months. Uh, yeah, the, the problem, like you said, is just we didn't know. Um, and it happened really fast. Um, and it changed all the time. And so, you know, it, it was just a huge amount of work. It was very stressful. Um, there was a lot of fear, obviously, in healthcare workers, uh, as you guys know. And then uh, it, you're trying to, in infection control, always sort of walk the balance between total paranoia, shut everything down, and how do we go about doing our jobs in a safe and efficient manner? Uh, and so, you know, I wrote, uh, we wrote a bunch of guidelines, uh, particularly myself and uh, Dr. Cockhut and Dr. Rupp. And, um, you know, I probably revised that testing guidance that I wrote 30 or 40 times um, over the course of about four months, five months. I don't know. It was kind of ridiculous. Um, but it was also, I think, uh, rewarding to be helpful and to provide resources. But it was, I would say, one of the more painful times of, uh, of my career um, just from a, a workplace standpoint, not because the people were painful, but as you guys know, the scenario was just, I was kind of a no win. There was no fun in that scenario. No, I remember many late night conversations about exposures that we really didn't know what to do, but we were brainstorming. Uh, I think I talked to Kelly multiple times at two in the morning about uh, some event that happened and we didn't, we were like, okay, well, let's do this and we'll see how it goes in the morning because <laughs> that was uh, about all we had. Right, right. And that was, I mean, that was the one great thing is we had a great team here. Uh, between yourself and employee health and, you know, the other infection control medical directors and our infection preventionists, we did have a great team. And so it was a great team to work with. Uh, it was just tough, tough situation. Yeah, it's been a rough 20 months for everybody, definitely, mm -hmm. especially with all of the guidelines constantly changing. Um, I know on the ICAP side of things, we've been working with facilities on their 
policies and procedures and um, everything through the pandemic. And, you know, one question that constantly comes up is how do you balance all of the COVID protocols that you have with your normal job duties? And when do you learn to let things go? Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a tough one. Um, right, because uh, the other thing that I, I, you know, and this has just been my struggle is I'm an overcommitment guy and have said yes to too many things. And so it is hard to balance those. Uh, with COVID, it just kind of eats up and other things just had to drop away, right? It's like there's an emergency. I kind of just can't work on this other stuff for a while. And so you drop your other stuff because you just have to. And you say, well, research, you'll just sit there for a while. And well, paper writing, you're not going to happen. And, you know, there's some administrative stuff. You have to keep the ball rolling, but, but it's hard. Um, and so I think it, for me, I've had to set boundaries, um, even just in my regular work. I've had to set boundaries where I say, you know, I used to answer a ton of emails at night. And I decided that's not good for me. It's not good for me. It's not good for my family. I said, you know what? I'm not going to answer a lot of emails. I might shoot off a quick one here or there, but I'm not going to devote a bunch of time to my emails at night. I'm not going to, because it was, for me, it was eating up my life. And I had to uh, find some balance. Uh, it was actually, so it's probably four years ago. Um, IDSA had this uh, like clinical mentorship program that I signed up for, which uh, I think they're still doing, but they kind of were just trialing it and send something out. And I didn't really know what I was signing up for. And then they sent me some form to fill out. And I'm like, this doesn't look like what I want to do. I don't want to do this. But I filled out the form and I met with a guy at uh, UC San Francisco. Um, uh, and we just kind of talked about my career and my time and what I was doing um, and he just gave me some really good feedback. He's like, Hey, you're doing really good in these areas. You don't need to do this extra stuff. You're going to do fine where you're at academically. You don't need to like take on these extra things. You should do the things that you enjoy. These are a couple of things that looks like you're really enjoying and you're doing well in them. So don't do this other stuff. And it was really good. Cause then I, I cut loose some stuff that I was not enjoying. It was taking up a bunch of my time. It was important, but it just wasn't stuff that I, you know, needed to do. Um, and some other people got to do that stuff, uh, which was good for them. Um, but it was really good for me. Uh, it just as a person and as a worker, uh, I actually enjoyed my work a lot more when I cut loose some of that stuff that I didn't need to do. Um, somebody needed to do it, but it wasn't me. That's some great yeah. advice. Yeah, I think it is hard to say no. I mean, you you kind of know that the work's going to fall on somebody and, and sometimes you say yes before you realize how much uh, impact it's actually going to have. So being yep. able to take that step back and and uh, do some things for yourself, I think is super important because, you know, this is a, a long career, a long haul, and you might as well be enjoying what you're doing, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and particularly when, uh, you know, things like COVID, I don't know that anybody enjoys COVID, but it has to be done. It's it's really something that needs to be done, whether you want to do it or not. And it really is an urgent thing that you have to deal with. So um, not everything in my job is that way, right? There are things that are more optional uh, and not everybody has that opportunity. Um, but when you take on too much, then that's a nice thing. You can cut away the fat. So. Yeah. I know I'm tired of masks. I'm thankful to have an office that I'm in by myself that I don't have to wear one. That's like, oh my goodness. <laughs> yes. 
Yes, I agree. Let's just go meet outside all the time. So. <laughs> if only we had the weather for it. If we all lived yeah. in San Diego, maybe we'd be all right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> 70 and sunny all day long. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you are uh, very active outside of work. Do you want to talk about your what you have going on? Yeah, so I mean, there's a lot going on outside of work. I mean, I have five kids. Uh, my oldest is 19 and a freshman at UNO. And then I have a senior, a freshman, a seventh grader, and a fourth grader. So they keep me pretty busy. Um, and, and then I'm pretty involved in our church too. I uh, help with leading there and have a lot of activities going on with that, which I also really enjoy. Uh, and that's part of what kept us here was being involved in that. I mean, the relationships and the friendships we made through that. It's just, um, you know, I think this is where I'm supposed to be. Um, and, and that's what I've told people. I'm staying here until, you know, God moves me somewhere else. And he says, you're going somewhere else. You know, Dr. Up fires me. And then I'm like, okay, well, I guess I'll go somewhere else. Uh, but until that happens, we're, we're sticking here. So. Yeah, that's good. I mean, and I think, uh, you know, a big part of what we've been talking about here is how important things are um, away from work that, that you're, that you're happy doing what you're doing, but you also have to be happy outside of here. And I think that that's a key thing for young people to keep in mind is that mm-hmm. um, finding that, that good work-life balance is not always easy. And sometimes it takes a little bit of experience and trial and error to get there, but it's, it's vital to being able to have a long and successful career and happy life and marriage and everything else. Right. Yeah. Oh, I totally agree. I mean, your work, you can find an enjoyable position many places is my feeling. There's a lot of good jobs out there. There's some bad ones too. Um, And there's a lot of good people you can work with. The, the thing is, can you build relationships? And, because those are the things, while writing my COVID guidelines was somewhat rewarding, it's not rewarding in the same way as relationships, spending time with people, hanging out, um, and, and you know, developing those things, uh, seeing your kids grow up, spending time with them. Those are the things that, uh, you know, the COVID guidelines need to be written. And I'm glad they're written and they're super valuable. But uh, you know, everything has to sort of be in its right place um, for you to be comfortable and enjoy where you're at. So um, one thing I would say, uh, it, it just has been weird as being, uh, being an infectious disease professional and being involved in an organization uh, and what they do um, with COVID response. Um, uh, it's been very interesting. Um, because a lot of the people I hang around with are highly conservative, as you could imagine, and have uh, sort of maybe disparate views uh, on masks. And so that's been a very interesting world to navigate through. Um, the nice thing is uh, people have listened that I've worked with. And, uh, you know, the other advantage was when the city put in a mask mandate, what are you going to do? You got to follow the laws. You got to do what you got to do. And so there are some advantages to the city doing things like that or to the state. Um, And I'm all for personal choice. Uh, But uh, I think we have to take into account other people when we make our personal choices. And uh, that's been, you know, it's been, I don't know, I find somewhat distressing um, when people don't consider those things, right? Because I'm all for personal choice and, you know, having freedom. But I think we have to think about other people and our choices. So, 
Yeah. I still have a personal mask mandate whenever I go to the store. So yeah, it might be one of the 10% that's wearing one, but maybe they all assume I'm not vaccinated. I'm actually following the, the, yeah. the, the guidelines, but yeah. probably not. They just I'm think wearing... you're an anti, you're an anti-vax guy. Right. There's all, oh, there's that anti-vax guy wearing his mask in my so. Nebraska medicine mask. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> yes. I still have a personal mask mandate and we had a family personal mask mandate. So <laughs> But I told uh, my daughter when she went to college, like, well, you don't have to wear a mask. But, you know, if you don't wear a mask in a lot of these things, um, you know, the circle of trust, you, you may not be in the circle of trust if, if you're going to sort of operate that way. So now we're having meet the Fockers references. That's awesome. Yes, exactly. exactly. <laughs> oh, great. Great. Hey, so I have to brag for a minute. So one of the other things that uh, you and I do together is we have a, a tried to get a clinic going for non-tuberculous mycobacterial infection. So um, we haven't really had much of a chance to talk about that yet. So mm. can you tell us a minute about that? Yeah, I don't know. This is like the uh, torture Rick and Trevor clinic with disasters. <laughs> uh, no, I, this kind of just grew out of, you know, we both have interest in those patients. And when you joined us, you had a bunch of them and I kind of collected some of them. And it's really a different kind of infectious disease. So much of what we do is treat, done in six to eight weeks, off antibiotics, you're cured, see you later, or maybe we put you on suppression if we have to. Uh, but managing non-tuberculous mycobacteria is, is much more, I find, challenging. It's longer treatment, more complicated, more drugs. Uh, it's sort of uh, like the anti-antimicrobial stewardship. You know, in antimicrobial stewardship, we want one drug, most narrow spectrum, I feel like for NTM treatment, some of these were like, let's just throw six drugs at them and see what happens. <laughs> so it's actually been a really interesting and enjoyable sort of niche thing to do. Um, I don't know. I, I think it's been really, uh, it's good to try and build a clinical program. I've never tried to really build anything like this and figure out how could we sort of systematically address this. And um, it's been fun. It's been really challenging. Yeah. I think the patients themselves are challenging, but I do, I agree with you. I like the challenge of building something that wasn't there. The, the, yep. There was nothing like this in the region or really the state uh, yep. that had anything like that. It was more, you know, uh, an ID provider or, or a pulmonologist might have one or two patients that they treat. Um, so to try to come up with a, a clinic and try to standardize kind of how we're doing things and and that in a world that's really not that standard, as you know. Um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, um, in as non-standard an ID world as you can probably find. Um, it, it's been fun. I mean, it's been a it's been a good journey together. It's like uh, Sarah and I doing our twenty second podcast today, mm -hmm. and Trevor and I having our I don't know. We've been doing the clinic now for probably uh, kind of went on hiatus with. Uh, with COVID for a little while there, because all of our patients have a cough, obviously. So it's hard, hard to have them on campus. Uh, but uh, for the most part, we've been doing that for about 18 months or so, uh, 20 months, something like that. So it's, it's been great. Has it, is it yeah. that all it's been or maybe longer? It might've been, been longer because yeah. we started pre COVID and COVID has been 20 months. So yeah, right? so it must be another, a year well, ahead of that maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. It's been the great thing about it too, is just been being able to do it with somebody else. And so like, if there's something really challenging, I just won't respond. And I know Rick's going to answer the question eventually. <laughs> <laughs> so no, that's been part of the fun part about it is doing it with somebody else and building it and sort of being able to bounce ideas off of each other. And um, 
just because the, the clinical scenarios are challenging and it's good to have more than one person giving input and then even to just work with our pulmonology colleagues. I've found it uh, 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 very enjoyable to, uh, to grow that and to do it with, with uh, I mean, particularly with you, Rick, it's been super easy um, to do that, uh, to work with you on it. So, yeah, I think it's funny how our practice patterns kind of have mirrored each other. We kind of mirrored each other even from the start, but I think we're even thinking more like now, whether that's good or bad, mm-hmm. I don't know, but, uh, um, but yeah. yeah, it's definitely, definitely good. It's been a good venture. So mm-hmm. that's awesome. Well, I know you are very busy outside of work and if you have time for this, are you reading or binge watching anything right now? Mm, uh, well, we started Hawkeye, which we've enjoyed. I mean, we've watched all the Disney series so far. Um, I have like eight books on my bookshelf that I'm trying to read. Um, that's the problem. Uh, I do better with Audible. So I like to mix up my Audible. I try to do... Um, some sort of trashy fiction, which for me is like, you know, modern science fiction or military fiction with, uh, I've been listening to the the greatest science fiction stories, uh, which are fantastic. And it's everything like pre-1970. And having listened to those, as I listen to them, I'm like, oh, that's the plot of that movie. That's the plot of that movie. That's the plot of those six TV different shows that I've watched. And just to hear those ideas and plots when they were laid out for the very first time that have just been replicated over and over in shows, TV shows, movies, uh, has really been interesting. And it's it's, I've thought it's just fascinating. The, the guys who came up with those ideas a hundred years ago, uh, that people are still sort of using those same plots. Um, like with the, I listened to the time machine by HG Wells. Mm-hmm. People have been doing time travel stories for a hundred plus years and they're all kind of about the same. So they are. So. Yeah. Imitation so, is the sincerest form of flattery, right? Exactly. Right. exactly. Some of them just go back into time. Some of them have like monsters that try to eat you when you go back yeah. or forward, or it's, yeah. it's, it's variations of a, of a similar thing. Yes. I guess we need to branch out a little more. <laughs> yes. Yes. Nothing new under the sun, I think, is what Solomon said 4,000 or 3,000 years ago. So, <laughs> well, do you have any questions for Rick or I? Well, let me ask you, uh, what are you guys binge watching or reading? Ooh, good question. I am on the third Dune book. So, mm. uh, Which one is that? Is that that's after Dune Messiah, right? No, the, yeah, Children of Dune. Oh, yeah. I heard it gets really weird in that one. Well, I'm about two chapters in, so it's not okay. really weird yet, but okay. I think it's going to get there. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I'm and still then, reading The Wheel of Time. Sorry, I didn't. Right. So, <laughs> no, no worries. How long have you been reading that, Rick? How many? How many years? For quite a few years. I'm <laughs> I'm on I'm on book twelve uh, now. Um, there's fourteen of them. Oh my um, goodness! So it's 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 long, and they're big mm-hmm. books. But I actually I used to 
always think I wanted to just read the book, actually have a book in my hand. I was like old school that way. And so whenever I'd travel, everything else, and by the time I got to the end of the book, the cover was torn off, you know, and, you know, it's just like <laughs> the binding was falling apart because I frankly don't either don't have or don't set aside enough time to read, I guess, uh, is the way you want to look at it. But I just started reading on my iPad with this last book. And I'm like, mm-hmm. wow this is pretty amazing. I had, I hadn't ever done that before. So I don't know if either of you guys do that, but I was like, this is, this is much nicer than having to carry around a book and figure out where the book is and everything else. Cause I always know where my iPad is. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I'm crazy. Yeah. I, I, my kids do it all the time. They read their Kindles all the time. I being a Luddite have, have not wanted to adopt that yet, but but I know many people who say the same exact thing you do, that they love it. And that's how they read most of their books. Plus the books are cheaper. So. Well, I just started on Sunday night. So I'll tell you if I like it in another week. <laughs> I've been reading my books on my iPad recently. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, it's great. It's like Rick has said, um, you know, I always know where my iPad is. I don't have to like dig around through the couch cushions or <laughs> wonder where my children put the book. <laughs> right or where you left off because your marker fell out or yeah i'm i'm one of those horrible people that does the dog ear thing mm, in a book no. i've been yelled at a lot for that but. oh yeah you should yeah. feel guilt over that yeah, yeah. you can't yeah. deface a book like that says the man wrong. who has his covers ripped off by the time he's done reading them. <laughs> hey that, that's from proper wear and tear i'm that's not doing right. that on purpose that's right, right. <laughs> oh they're being stuffed into a bag 30,000 times, right? Yes. Yeah. I don't know how many yeah. trips I carry mm-hmm. on a book because I'm, I, I can't read. I get motion sickness. So I can't read when I'm flying. So I have to watch something. You know, so it just sits there and I bring it with me and I think oh, I'll read it when I'm sitting by the pool or whatever. And it's like, I just never get to it. You know, the, the bar's too close. The beach is right there. <laughs> right. You know, I... <laughs> Priorities, right? Uh, that's right. Oh. <laughs> Oh, well, anything we didn't get to, uh, Trevor? Uh, I think you've kind of covered a lot, covered it all. So, yeah, we appreciate you coming back on with us. This is like your third venture with us or this one by yourself. I think you were on some of the stewardship ones and then you hopped on for the fellows. So thanks Mm -hmm. for coming back on us uh, with us again. We'll have to do it again. Yeah, that was fun. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. Mm -hmm. No problem at all. And for all of our listeners out there, thanks for joining us on this episode of Dirty Drinks, and we will catch you next time. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. If you enjoyed this content, please share it with your friends. And don't forget to be a part of the conversation by following us at Dirty underscore Drinks on Twitter. If you would like to share your story, reach out to us through Twitter to become a guest on future episodes. We would love to meet you. Have a great week and make sure to get your fill of dirty drinks.